right, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Happy Mother's Day uh, to the mothers in the audience this morning. Thank you for being here. Um, Mother's Day is always a funny thing. So there's, there's four, statistically, four Sundays a year where you're expected to have a bump in church attendance. And those are obviously, first of all, like Easter and Christmas, which is where, you know, your friends and family, you can invite everyone. And then oddly enough, the third biggest one is uh, the time change Sunday when you get an extra hour of sleep. For some reason, people are like, oh, let's go. And then the fourth one is Mother's Day, except for when you're in Santa Monica. So like that's like everyone here has moms outside. So we're praying for everyone uh, in their current church context. God be with them. Um, let's uh, let's get into what we're doing this morning. So this morning. Um, there, there's just certain sermons uh, that, I've, that I've done over the while that I get really nerdy and really excited about, and this might be the one that I'm the most excited about, uh, period. Do we have that first slide, Stephen? Uh, no, I'm sorry, the one with my notes on it. That's a lovely portrait, though. There we go. Okay, so this is where we're going this morning, and I'm just going to let you see the scribble because we've got a lot to cover, but here it is. Uh, that's an MLK quote up there. We're going to talk about the Iran deal because I really want to keep my job. Uh, Donald Glover, Living Parables, Frame Narrative, Forrest Gump, Ghost Stories, Psalm 47, Salah, Jacob's Macomb, Moses and Sinai, Disciples and a Boat, and Ascension, Buddha, and then finally, Why a Box of Triscuits is the reason that we're all here this morning. And that it's going to be incredible. So, um, I'm overselling this a lot. It might be terrible, but let's go for it. Let's pray really hard, uh, and then we'll get in to what we're doing. Lord, uh, thank you just for uh, being with us in this space. Thank you for the ability to, uh, to come and talk about weird stuff and end on a Triscuit's note. Thank you for the ability um, to praise you. God, I thank you uh, just for our music team and the awesome worship uh, we were just led in. May we uh, pause in those moments and truly understand that uh, you're, you're working in this space and you're working through us. Um, and we pray that as our arrows out model is something we're really trying to strive for, that you would send us out of this place um, in that mode. Uh, Lord be with us. Amen. Um, so the unexpected, and yet it should have been very expected, um, thing with this series, we're in a series called Broken Color. Uh, and basically what we're doing is we're pulling from the lectionary, which is uh, a very awesome old um, traditional way to move through a liturgical calendar and also move through the Bible. So the idea is it's separated into three years. There's your A, B, and C, and we're in your B right now. But basically, uh, over the three-year span, it's a way to get through most of the key scriptures in the Bible within three years and preach on them and do all that good stuff. So there's three years, and we're in year two. And what these people did a long time ago is they said it, it helps for us not to just talk about the Gospels and not just talk about Jesus, but we need to pull in like the Old Testament. We need to be talking about Moses, and we need to be talking about Jacob, and we need to be talking about uh, David and Goliath, like all of these rich stories and traditions that bring us into who we are right now. So they, they took four passages, sometimes they're five, sometimes they're six passages, but they range all throughout the scriptures. Most of them include a psalm, which is a bit of poetry for us, and then they'll include a, a, an epistle, which is a letter that's been written mostly by Paul, and then they'll also include a gospel text, and then most times they'll also include a prophetic text, which is from like Isaiah. So you're getting all of these different uh, places in the Bible that are all pointing to one idea, and that's exactly what Broken Color is in the art world. It's a series of these broken up brush strokes that for some reason, as you look at it, your brain puts them all together and you're able to see an impression of something. And this is an artist trusting you with what you see. So you might see something in this that I don't see. And that's the beauty of that broken color idea. It's to accentuate the light, to accentuate an idea, to accentuate a feeling. 
And so when I was going through all this stuff, at first I thought this is, this is going to be a nightmare because also we're trying to like use all of these lectionary texts to point to what's going on in the current news cycle, which let me just tell you, my stress level has gone way, way up during this series. Um, the current news cycle is just something I'm paying attention to and I'm seeing how do these things interact with each other? What's the common thread? What's the common thread what's gone on 2,000 years ago to right now, this week, sitting right here and right now? And what I found over the last couple weeks is that this, this theme of mutuality has kept coming up. This theme of constantly being connected to each other and learning that like even with all of these texts and all this different stuff, we are way more connected than we have been ever before through things like social media. And like a lot of times we think those are driving us apart, but the fact is we keep becoming more connected. We just don't know how to deal with that very well. And we're in a learning curve and this is, these are growing pains that we're experiencing. But look, let's look at this MLK quote. Um, he says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Now, we've probably, most of us probably heard this quote. It's a very famous quote, and it's from uh, a letter from the Birmingham jail. Um, and this, this should be like, it, it's required reading in high schools. It should be required reading for us all because that letter is just like gospel truth. It's amazing what he was writing from a jail cell, which is very, very, very biblical-esque. Um, but what I figured out this morning when I was actually studying or that letter, not this morning, this week, uh, is something very shocking. And I, I don't know why I had just always kind of gone past this, but the opening line goes like this. To my fellow clergymen. That's the opening line. That's who this is addressed to. It turns out he wrote this in the jail to eight white clergymen, including rabbis, who were going against King because they said that his, his mode, his peaceful mode of, of nonviolent protest was going to end up violent, that what he was doing was far too extreme. And so at that point, when that happens, there, there's going to be an eruption. Something's going to happen, and he's got to stop these marches, and we've got to throw him in jail, and he must be stopped. And so he writes this letter to critique them and to say, like, no, guys, you don't get it. This has to turn over. And he becomes increasingly, increasingly, like, more just livid about one group in particular. And he's like, guys, it's not even the haters, and it's not even the people that are supporting me that are going to end up being the downfall of this movement. What's going to be the downfall of this movement is actually what I call the white moderate. Just the person that says this isn't the right time, or it's not convenient to fight for this right now. I'd really like to keep my neighborhood and schools the way that they are, and let's just not push the issue. That's who's gonna be responsible for the downfall of all of this. And when I look and I critique what's going on in church today, it's pretty interesting, because at the end of MLK's life, this is true, only just over half of Americans were truly on board with his message, just over half. If they were polled, said so they would support Martin Luther King. This is the time of his death, just over half. And you'd think that if we've come this far, right, we're, we're all the way along, we're in 2018, if something like this was going on, we would all be on board. But the real scary fact is just over half of us in this room, in a very real sense, would be on board. I'm not, that's not a critique on who you vote for or whatever. That's just saying half of the people in this room would, would be, like, struggling. Be going, I, I don't know. How are we opening this up. How are we making this a bigger place? 
right, now that we've covered race, let's, let's move to the Iran deal, because that'll be fun. Um, <laughs> this week, there's undoubtedly the biggest story in the news, uh, and there's, there's more, there's things going on in Hawaii, we're praying for that. Um, there's just, I mean, there's a, this was a big, big news week. Um, but I'm not gonna get political with this Iran deal. All I'm gonna say is that it will affect everything, right? No matter what your political opinion is, this is going to affect a lot of different countries. It's going to affect our planet, right? And I'm, not, I'm praying we come out on top on this, like I hope that that's the deal, but just on a very baseline level, things are gonna change. And the reason is we're all connected. And the danger is not seeing that, that we are all deeply woven together and what one person does affects the other. And let's leave politics out of it. I'm gonna be completely unpolitical and completely political at the same time. It's a total Jesus move. What this comes down to is a big weapon, right? It's a big weapon. It's a very scary weapon. And here's the deal. I think if you look through scripture, and especially if you look through the teachings of Jesus, I think one of his key themes is weapons are stupid. <laughs> weapons hurt. Violence is not a part of this new kingdom that he's coming to usher in to the world, right? And I'm all for defense and for, for protection, but for me, it ends in the garden. You see, the very last day that Jesus was with us, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he prays and he prays and he prays, and we talked about this last week, but one of his key lines was, Lord, my big prayer for them is that they would be one, that they would be one all together. And look at the chronological sort of series of events here. After he prays that prayer, he comes back, and he comes back, and Judas reveals himself, and he comes and he gives him a kiss, and he takes him away. And then what happens next is very interesting. One of Jesus' followers, in some gospels it's Peter, um, in other gospels it just says a servant, uh, takes a sword and slices off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Just cuts off the ear. And Jesus says in three different gospels, they're all different texts, but most of it is enough of this, stop this, or if you draw the sword, you will die by the sword. And then he is taken and he is crucified. So you see, guys, violence in the kingdom, if, if he wanted to fight back, he could have in that moment, right? Violence in the kingdom is not something that we should be moving towards. It all ends there. So if we're going to talk about being interwoven in stories within stories, because that's what we are. We are all a story within a much larger story. If we're going to talk about stories within stories, we're going to talk about weapons, and we're going to talk about the current news cycle, we can't not talk about Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino. If you guys saw this video this week, um, and if you can, I, I cannot show it here, but if you want to watch it, I, I cannot confirm or deny its Christian value. Um, it's incredible. It's a piece of art. It's just a masterpiece. There's, there's so much going on in this video. His dance moves are, are ridiculous, but there's so much cultural identity that's happening. There's so much critique on gun culture in the United States. There's all of this stuff all interwoven in this four-minute video, literally dozens of different storylines. There's, there's things going on. I even had to pause it at one point. We had that next slide of the horse. I was like, is that a horse? And sure enough, that's a horse in the background. Like, they had a horse run through the soundstage. It's crazy. It's all over the place. We can put, pull lights up. There we go. Um, oh, by the way, uh, Stephen is in the booth this morning, and Stephen was on donuts, uh, setup, and slides, so he takes the cake for Greatest Resonator for the morning. Let's all give him a cut. Beautiful. Um, but he, this is, what's that? Yes, indeed, and Rose protests. Um, I totally got thrown off. Okay, yeah, Donald Glover. <laughs> This man is actually a story within a story in himself. He's like a human explosion. He can dance, he can sing, he can rap, he can act. He's just this triple threat all around like crazy talented human being. 
And I think this video is also a huge representation of like his reach and his power as an artist to, to move in different, different uh, artistic arenas and, and get things done. And what's amazing is this is a really, really cool way to illustrate how Jesus operates. Because Jesus is constantly bringing in stories within other stories because as soon as you bring in another story to a single narrative, the story gets richer. As soon as we start piling in more stories to one single story, the story overall gets more interesting. We want to we dive into it more. We want to watch it again and again and again. We try and figure out how that's doing it. In the case of the scriptures, we want to read it over and over and over because we're like, so much is going on in this one thing. So what Jesus would do is he would tell these things called parables, and they were all stories within stories within stories. When he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he tells the story of a Samaritan who helps a half-dead Jewish man. And at first, this seems like a really cool adage, like, here, let's go help. But then when you realize the racial tension and the cultural identity at that time to even touch someone, for a Samaritan to touch a Jewish person, it's very important. In the scriptures, it says the man was laying there half dead, which means that you would have to approach the body, and you wouldn't just, like, poke it with a stick, although I think that might have been an option, but he would have had to have touched the man to see if the man was alive, to see if he was living. And in that moment, he would have crossed all sorts of cultural barriers. So in that way, Jesus is telling a story within a story within a story. And if he's not telling stories, he's living these stories. He's living a parable. Look at, um, we talked about like a couple weeks ago, a month or two ago now, uh, we talked about Palm Sunday and the idea of Jesus riding in on a donkey. He's now living out a parable. What he's saying, a donkey is a symbol for peace. You could ride a horse, that's a symbol for war. And he comes in and he's riding a donkey. And even more than that, he figures out that uh, when Pilate came into the city for their big parade that would happen a week before when he was supposed to get there, they would have come in from the west side of the city, and they would have come in on a bunch of uh, horses with swords and just this big show of power, like, don't you dare revolt. And when Jesus hears that they came in from the west, he goes, we'll come in from the east. And so in so many ways, Jesus is doing stories within stories and symbols, living these parables out loud. And that brings us to maybe the most fascinating parable that he lives out and creates a story within a story in a current context, and that's the one of Legion. So let's read this together. Um, this is Jesus comes off of a boat in the Gerasenes, and he's faced with this man who has been like self-afflicting himself with rocks. He's broken out of chains. He's very obviously very disturbed and demon-possessed. And, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he responded, Legion is my name because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, so the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then a herd of about 2,000 pigs, hold on to that 2,000 number, 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away, not a good day for the guys who were tending the pigs, ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who used to be filled with many demons sitting there fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave the region. So, this is a pretty good bedtime story, right? I mean, it's, it, there's some heavy, heavy stuff in here. You've got demon possession. We've got the mass 
death of pigs. We've got uh, a whole town that gets turned on its head because the person that they had been afflicting and the person that they wanted on the outside is now sitting in front of them completely sane. And we have them actually asking Jesus to leave. So there's all sorts of different directions you could go with this. And that's the beauty of scripture. You can kind of move in different directions. There's a thousand meanings to every line in there. But look at this. We could look at this story as a story of demon possession, and we could look at this story as, as, as Jesus heals this man, and that's all beautiful. But you have to remember, this is out of the Gospel of Mark. This, this Mark guy is not just a biographer, right? He's not just writing a story down. He's a writer. And in ancient context, everything is drenched in poetry and meaning. It was just the way that they talked. It was just the way you conversed. That tradition of orally handing things down, it was stories. We share stories so that we remember who we are. We're going to talk about this later, but Abraham Joshua Heschel literally calls to be, to be Jewish is to remember. That's what he says. To remember is to be Jewish. And in that culture, that's what it was. We need to remember what's going on. So they would pass down these stories and they would use metaphor and symbolism and beauty. And so when they're telling this story, to our eye, it, it seems like a pretty straightforward, scary story, Right? There's a huge number of demons inside this man, and they go into the pig. But here's the deal. As they're writing this down, this thing is loaded with meaning. So first of all, what's the guy's name? Why do they mention it? Why does Jesus ask his name? Because there's no other instance in a demon possession thing where Jesus goes, what's your name? There are many an acts of the followers of Jesus asking him, what's your name? And that's sort of like a power move. Once you have the name over something, it's controllable. But... Jesus asks for his name, and he replies very specifically, legion, for we are many. Now, for us, legion is just like a fancy word for a lot of people. But in this particular place, in the Gerasenes, this was taken over by what was known as the 10th legion of the Roman army. The legion. See, the Roman army was a lot different than the Greeks or the Babylonians, where the Greeks and the Babylonians, they would come and they would have a huge, massive show force. Like, there would just be thousands upon thousands of soldiers, and they would all gather together, and travel in one big clump. But the Roman army figured out that if we can separate these into legions, we can get places way faster, and we can dominate the world on a much quicker pace. And so what they did is they would break these soldiers up into groups of 2,000, and they would be called legions. So what's even more than this is they would have a couple symbols they'd be carrying with them. One would be an eagle, which would claim their power and their vision and their strength. And then on every shield of a legion on a Roman army, there would be the symbol of a boar, which is a pig. So it's, you know, not boars, but he's, he's working with it. So there's a boar, then you have a legion, and then you have them all thrown over the cliff. Basically, guys, at the end of this story, the people aren't just scared of the fact that Jesus was able to tame this man and throw this out. They were scared that if the Roman army that was stationed there figured out this major political move they did, that they would all be wiped. It's a story within a story. And he's using all of the brush strokes, all of the palette. He's pulling from all sorts of different levels, and we should really consider following this man. <laughs> it's a huge, huge, huge leap forward. It turns out there's actually a name for this story within a story thing uh, in literature and in film and in all of that, and it's called frame narrative. And basically what frame narrative is, is it's a story within a story. It, it starts out with a single narrator or a couple narrators, but they're telling the story and maybe the characters are within that story. So classic example is Princess Bride. Princess Bride, there's the grandpa reading to the kid. It's all framed within, this is a story that a grandfather is telling a son. Now to bring it way back, 
The Odyssey is also a frame narrative. Odysseus is in the, the, uh, the court of the king as he tells the first part of this story, and he's also in the story. And then Frankenstein is a frame narrative. There's three different perspectives from three different characters, Victor, Walton, and the monster. And so by the end of the story, you have seen the story from six eyes, right? You've seen it from three different pairs of eyes, and so you have a greater understanding of the story. The story is framed differently, right? There's even more than that, uh, but I think the best frame narrative that we could possibly talk about uh, is the 1994 classic Forrest Gump. Now, in Forrest Gump, which I watched last night in preparation for this and was completely weepy-eyed, in Forrest Gump, uh, you have the story of Forrest who narrates the, most of the story from a park bench, right, waiting for a bus to strangers turned friend. And for the whole, like, first couple acts of the movie, we have him telling these remarkable stories of his life and where he started and where he's come from and where he's going and how he ended up here and all these incredible, like, stories in between. Uh, but then there's a very interesting thing that happens in this frame narrative that's actually very unique to most other frame narratives. What happens in this is in the final act, Forrest leaves the bench. So before, we've been following what he did. Like, here's what Forrest did all the way through. And now, for the whole rest of the movie, we're in real time. He's left the bench. And it got me thinking about all of the leave the bench moments that we have in life, where we think our story is done and over, like we've accomplished what we came to accomplish, or we've gotten this job, or we've done this thing. And we just think, oh, that's the thing that defines me in life. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're leaving the bench now. You're going to take this story further because you're a story within a story, and the story keeps going. You're ever-evolving, and you're going to keep going and keep having more journeys and more stories. And the Bible is littered with these leave-the-bench moments. Abraham, Father Abraham, you know the son, the son said, Father Abraham. Father Abraham, <laughs> sorry, that's wired in there. Father Abraham <laughs> was at the, near the end of his life when God calls him and says, go, leave and create this new family that I have for you. Go, and I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to create this new nation. You're going to be the father of this huge thing. He's at the tail end of his life at this point. He's like, wait, no, 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 I got this settled. I got the family. We've got the farm. Like, we're good. And he's like, no, leave. And Abraham does. Moses is already a fugitive on the run. He's already been like the Pharaoh's son, been in their court system, and then he, he kills a man, and then he runs away, and he's been exiled, and he starts a family. And he's living as a shepherd in exile. And then God says, hey, I want, I want you back. I want you to leave the bench. It seems like the Christian story is always something that's telling you, no, you're not finished yet. You're a human being. You're a human happening. You're not a human stop. Right? I, if, if you're a human stop, it's not so great. <laughs> right? You are a human being. And so as we walk through life, always be conscious of the fact that maybe, maybe I need to Maybe I need to leave the bench. Maybe I need to move forward. And that brings us to uh, our beautiful psalm for this morning. So um, let's, let's read the psalm together. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. He subdued the nations under uh, our feet. He chose our inheritance for us and the pride of Jacob, who we love. Now, this is a, a, a B, it's a footnote, but hold on to that. That's very, very, very important. Pride of Jacob, whom he loved. And then God has ascended amidst shouts of joy. And so what we actually, we, we bummed out, we didn't do the scripture readings this morning. Um, but 
The other scripture readings from the lectionary are about Ascension. So today is Ascension Sunday. Actually, Wednesday was, but we're covering it this Sunday. But it's all about Ascension. Basically, God, Jesus, after he's come back, comes to his followers, spends about 40 days with them, and then ascends into the clouds. So hold on to that idea as we go through the psalm. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, and the Lord amid sounding of trumpets. Do we have another slide? Nope, that's it. Okay. Amid sounding of trumpets. So what we have here is a psalm, and the psalms are written hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. Hundreds of years. And yet there's this idea of ascension. And so you see that like this story within a story, they're even using prophetic language to look forward in the story. And in this, we have a very, very interesting footnote, which in most like regular kind of hard copy Bibles, you'd see where that footnote, where that B was, a word that is one of my favorite words in the whole world, and it's called Selah. Everyone say that with me, Selah. Selah. We can do that, yeah, right. Um, selah is a fun word because we have no word for it in English. In fact, Bible scholars have argued for years about what this word means. No one can pin it down. So this is my favorite argument for when people get mad at our tagline, we're a church where people don't have it all figured out. Like, I, I go, what's Salah mean? And then it's a, just a good sucker punch move. But um, <laughs> Salah is this unattainable word. And that's not, that's not because we don't have like great words and we can explain the heck out of it. Basically, we just don't have a word that matches that word perfectly. Because what, what we're focused on in a culture is what we create a language around, right? A pad, a pod, these things were different before we put I in front of them, right? Now we have meaning to a pad and a pod and a phone, right? We create words and language over the stuff that we actually need to attain. In the Inuit language, which is the language of the Eskimos, they have 50 different words for snow, 50 different words. And most of those words, we have no direct translatable thing, but they're spending a lot of time in snow. So what do you do when you're spending a lot of time in snow? You make up a whole language around this thing that you deal with every single day. But basically, the best shot we have at Salah is a couple different things. We think, one, it could be just a musical connotation, which is a pause. It's a director to the director of music to stop the harp and stop everything. It's a pause. And then the other sort of more literal translation would be, write this down which is crazy to think of in our worship services. What if the worship, Omid's just like, can you guys write this down? Like, <laughs> but it's, it's write this down, take note. Like, figure, selah. Take a second and remember, pause, reflect. Like I said, for this culture, and what Abraham Joshua Heschel states is that to be Jewish is to remember. And this culture had a huge emphasis on remembering where have we come from. We were slaves and now we are free. And we must always remind ourselves of that. The Israelite and Hebrew culture is fantastic at going, stop, pause. It's built into their week. It's called Sabbath. Every seventh day, we stop, we pause, we reflect. Because we allow what's happened from the last week in our story to seep into us. And then there's a leave the bench moment and we're going back into the week. They have high holy days. They have festivals. And all of them are surrounded around the idea of we need to pause, reflect, and remember where we've come from. Because if we lose where we've come from, we're not gonna move forward in the right way. We must say la, pause, stop, reflect. So in this Psalm, that line, do we have that slide, Steven? I'm sorry to backtrack on you, but yes, boom. Where does the Salah happen? It happens after he chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loved. And basically there's this moment where he says, hold on, remember, pause, reflect. Who is Jacob? pride of whom he loved. Who's, who's Jacob? Well, Jacob 
is my favorite character in the Bible because his story is unbelievable. He starts out, Jacob means liar in Hebrew, and he starts out um, grabbing the heel of his brother coming out of the womb, and there's this constant tension between the two brothers for their entire lives. Till finally, one day, um, Jacob's mom convinces him, happy Mother's Day, convinces him to steal the inheritance. Good God, mom. Um, and so he goes to his father, and he's put on these, uh, this rough, like, kind of goat skin thing, and his father's uh, sight is failing, and so he can't figure out who it is, but his brother has really burly arms. And so he comes in, and is, he says, it's me, your son Esau. Your son Esau. And then he says, okay, come receive your blessing. And he gives him a blessing, which basically means now God's blessing is going to follow your path instead of Esau's. It's a tricksy, tricksy move. And he knows it because then he has to flee for his life because his brother Esau, who is a hunter and would know how to kill him, <laughs> could get him. So he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And while he's on the run, he has this moment where the Bible describes he takes a rock and he places it as a pillow and he falls asleep. And as he's asleep, he sees this ladder where heaven and earth are connected and the angels are descending and ascending from it. And there's all sorts of sermons that we could talk about just on that story alone. But to sum it up, basically, what he's saying is what that dream kind of means is like, Jacob, I understand you stole this. I understand you're on the run. I understand you're hurting, but I'm not through with you yet. I'm still here. And so when he awakes from the dream, he says, surely God was in this place and I, I did not know. And he builds a monument in this place, this makom, is a Hebrew word for place and also a Hebrew word for God. Makom, surely God was in this place and I, I did not know. He builds this monument and he leaves. And he goes off and he creates a life for himself, right? This is his leave the bench moment. He creates this life for himself and about 20 years go by and he's wrestling and he realizes I, I need to rectify this with my brothers. 20 years of maturity, 20 years of following God, 20 years of figuring this out and he goes, you know what? This just isn't going to be complete. My story is not complete until I've redeemed my relationship. I've reconciled my relationship with my brother. And so he goes and he takes his whole family with him and he goes to attempt to apologize to his brother, which in that ancient society, his brother had every right to strike him down right then and there. This is a big deal. It's a big roll of the dice. And then this very interesting thing happens. He comes upon that place, that Macomb, once again, same spot where the monument is built. And he sends his family across the river to where his brother is, and he spends the night there. And this time, instead of sleeping peacefully and God coming into him with a dream saying, I'm still, I'm not done with you, I still want you. This time he wrestles with God. This time he wrestles with the divine, and the divine knocks his hip out of place. And this time, when the divine asks, what's your name? What's your name? He doesn't want to give it to him. Jacob keeps throwing that back, like, what's your name? What's your name? And finally, the vine goes, what's your name? And Jacob answers back, Jacob. There's a huge deal with this. It's the last time that he was asked, what's your name? It's by his father, and he replies, Esau. And Jacob, whose name means liar, now told the truth. My name is Jacob. And then as he tells the truth, God says, that's no longer your name, because you're no longer a liar. Your name is Israel, because you have wrestled with the divine and lived. So there and back again, moment. Same place, but now Jacob has changed. He's come back. And this creates this huge narrative in scripture that keeps on presenting itself. Moses goes to a burning bush at Mount Horeb and describes Mount Horeb as the first thing, but that word is actually a dialectical word. The Israelites had a different name for this mountain. It was called Mount Sinai. 
which is sinet, the root word, which means burning, on fire, which is the burning bush. So he's at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and God says, I want you to go free my people. And then they come back to that mountain. And now the place has stayed the same, but Moses has changed. The place has stayed the same, but Jacob has changed. It's a there and back again moment. Even more so, we fast forward a little bit, the disciples start their journey with Jesus on a boat, and Jesus says, come follow me, and it's this awesome sort of thing in scripture, they're like, okay, and they go and they follow Jesus, and where do they end up after Jesus dies and comes back? Jesus finds them on a boat in the Sea of Galilee in the very same place. The place has not changed, but their journey has just begun. This is a leave the bench moment, there and back again every time. It's the journey, it's these units there and back again, where we see, oh, that's where I lived my life. You with me? Those moments in between, I was there first, and now I've come back to this place that we realize that's where life is led. Just all this talk about life is a series of peaks and valleys. But just look at the spatial awareness of that example. Like a valley is big enough, in our case, to fit lots of targets, <laughs> right? A valley is big enough to live in. A peak is not. A peak is just to get the view of what's to come next. And then we go back into the valley. It's a leave the bench moment. And so that brings us to ascension, where in Acts, they're staring at Jesus, and he leaves. And the scripture describes him as just staring, just staring up at the sky, like, where'd he go? Is he going to come back? What are we doing? And it takes two angels to roll onto the scene to say, hey, he's going to be back the same way that he came. For them, that should be an aha moment to go, oh, this is the leave the bench moment. It's time to start a new journey. It's time for you guys to take the stuff that you've learned from this man and go and spread this kingdom, this gospel of good news, of love. Go be good news. Leave the bench. It's time for a new journey and a new story to begin. About four years ago, uh, yeah, it was about four years ago, um, Chels and I were, uh, I was on staff at a church um, in Agora Hills. Uh, he'd been in Calabasas and we moved to Agora Hills. And we just sensed that our time was kind of coming to an end there. Like it, I was a youth pastor, I was a worship leader, and I was doing the tag. It was just, it was a lot. I would literally play up front and then I would run back to the other side of the church and I would lead the youth group and then I would run back for the last song. And it was just getting, it was getting to be arduous and tiring. And, and we needed to figure out what our next step was. And we felt God was like, moving us in a different direction. And, and so we began to just kind of look around, like, God, what, where do you want us? What do you, what do you want to do with us? Um, and I, I got uh, a job offer at a church in the South Bay that was very, very awesome. Um, we, were, we were there, uh, we were pretty much ready to do it, and it was great, we had benefits, everything was, everything was rock solid. Uh, and then my dad um, shows up and he's like, hey, I wanna plant a church in your neighborhood. <laughs> And I went, oh, well, that's cool. I'm going to leave this neighborhood. <laughs> um, but he's like, no, I, I really think that you should do this. And so the background story of this is when Chelsea and I moved to Santa Monica, uh, say eight years ago, no, six years ago. <laughs> Good Lord, that's just going to kill me. Six years ago, um, we moved, we would, we would walk the streets and we would just kind of like pray and think about how cool would it be uh, to just to have a church here, like in our, in our space. Um, how cool would it be? We had, we had a group of friends they were all in apartment buildings surrounding us, and there were a group of like 20 of us, and we were like, what if we just all gathered together and started something? And so we would pray, and we would stop, and we'd pray on corners and just kind of go like, God, you know, what, what, what does this look like? We're feeling something. We don't know what it looks like. 
So anyway, my dad comes to me with that, and I get really torn. I'm like, uh-oh, maybe I'm missing what God is doing. So hold on, press the pause button. So we go to um, uh, Palm Springs for New Year's, as one does, and we're there with all of our friends who are in this kind of friend group, and we go out for New Year's, and then we come back, uh, and I'm struggling with this decision. We've got the crazy thing over here, and we've got the perfectly safe and sound thing right here, right? We've got both and, but I don't know what to do. And the best thing to do when you don't know what to do is to gather your friends after a night out of New Year's and put them in a room and say, what should we do? Because everyone's going to be of same mind. So we put them all in the room, and I was like, guys, I'm struggling with this. Should we do the safe one? Here's what this looks like, la, 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 Here's what this looks like. Here's what this looks like. And then should we do the crazy one? Here's what this looks like. Here's what this looks like. Here's what this looks like. Meanwhile, all the while, Sean Blackwood, um, head of the board here, uh, is in the corner of the room. Sean, if you know him, is not one for the sappy stuff. So he doesn't like talking about like, emotional stuff. I've asked him if I can tell a story. He'll deal with it. Uh, he, hates, he hates like you know when I get mushy-gushy and he's always like, oh, gosh. So he's just in the corner, just crushing a box of Triscuits. Just like, like kind of looking at me and he's crunching and he's like, mm, oh, gosh, this conversation. Mm. And, uh, and, and then I, I get fired up and I'm like, yeah, and this, 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 I think that God could do something crazy in Santa Monica and this would be an amazing space and, and just such an incredible thing. And then finally from the back of the room, Mr. Sean Blackwood yells, do the crazy thing <laughs> through Triscuits coming out of his mouth. And in that moment, I realized, okay, yeah, it's time to leave the bench. It's time to go. It's time to start a new journey, start to move towards something new and brilliant and trust God in what he's doing. See, in all these stories of scripture and all these stories of faith, there is a great, great deal of risk. There is never God going, hey, go with me, and I promise everything's going to work out perfectly along the road. No. It's a there and back again moment. This is in The Hobbit, which is also a frame narrative. This is leaving the Shire. In our own story, this is leaving the garden. The hero's journey is always to step out of the comfort that they've built and into something new. And I believe that that is what God is always talking about. Now, finally, we end on Buddha. In the Buddhist tradition, do you know that Jesus is not the only deity to walk on water? In the Buddhist tradition, Buddha does the same thing. There's, there's actually very, very similar narratives. And it's kind of crazy to look at how those both play out. But here's the deal. In the Buddha narrative, he walks on water and his followers watch. And that's beautiful. That's awesome. That's glorious. But in the Jesus narrative, the only time we see Jesus walk on water, he calls Peter out of the boat. And the miracle is not so much that Jesus is walking on water, but that Peter walks too. That all of a sudden, it's not just, you know, I want to call you into what I am doing. You can do this too. The Christian tradition is always about jumping in and leaving the bench. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much uh, just for this morning, for, for your word, for the ability to just talk about the things that truly matter the most. And I pray that, um, pray that you would just bless this, uh, this last song with us, bless our time of communion, and uh, let us uh, have a great time with each other after the service. Amen.